One of the things that uh, has happened with COVID uh, is that um, there's been a lot of talk about Revel the book of Revelation and there's been a lot of um, misunderstanding of the book of Revelation going around, making people fearful. And uh, so that's one of the reasons that I really thought that it was important as a church that we actually go through the book of Revelation. Because instead of being a book about fear, it's a book about encouragement for God's people as they face hard times. And I am tired of it being used and of it being misused. And uh, the other thing, of course, is that uh, this is um, we, the, the series is called Revelation, uh, Eternal Hope in Christ in the Face of Present Suffering. Uh, jokingly, the other thing that we've, uh, we've sort of subtitled it, God's boring people look at an exciting book. Not with idle speculation, but by digging into it and trying to understand it and then being able to interpret it properly for the people to hear. Right. I apologise if you were at um, the... Um, morning service, oh no, the, the evening service uh, a couple of weeks ago, the, the evening service two, two months ago because I used the same illustration then. John Stephen Aquare never stood on the winner's podium at the Olympic Games. He never had a medal placed around his neck or a wreath placed on his head. He lived his whole life in poverty in a dirt-floored hut in his home village. Yet, he has inspired millions worldwide with his running. And his name is synonymous with the modern Olympic marathon. It happened at the Mexico City Olympics in 1968. And it's a story that's best told in the great Olympic movie, 16 Days of Glory. It's better that you see it than I tell it to you. So, thanks, John. At the 1968 Mexico City Marathon, three men earned the right to stand on the victory platform, the winners of the gold, silver, and bronze Olympic medals. But for some, the reward is a personal one, the knowledge that they finished what they set out to do. A little over an hour after the winner of the marathon crossed the finish line, John Stephen Aquari of Tanzania approaches the stadium, the last man to complete the journey. A voice calls from within to go on, and so he goes on.
afterwards it was written, Today we have seen a young African runner who symbolizes the finest in the human spirit. A performance that gives true dignity to sport. A performance that lifts sport out of the category of grown men playing at games. A performance that gives meaning to the word courage. Perhaps the words of John Stephen Aquari epitomize all that is right in the human spirit. When asked why he did not quit, he said simply, My country did not send me 5,000 miles to start the race. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish the race. The light in this Tanzanian runner is a beacon to us all. He uh, dislocated his knee at the 19-kilometre mark. But his words, My country did not send me 5,000 miles to start the race, but to finish it, uh, is, uh, rings in our ears. John Stephen Aquare's faithfulness in the face of suffering and backed in a, a different film clip than that one uh, by the tune of the great resurrection hymn, Thine be the glory, risen conquering sun, captures the essence of the letter to the church in Smyrna. A church that has persevered in the face of tribulation, poverty and slander, and that Jesus is telling will face further persecution, violent detention and even death. A church that's called to be faithful, not fearful, as it goes through those trials. And if the first mark of the true church is love, says John Stott, uh, the, the second mark is truly suffering. You can't love without suffering. And you know, maybe in our comfortable Western society, we have forgotten that cost of following Jesus. But from its start, and even for many of our brothers and sisters in the world today, to follow Jesus is to suffer. And there have been moments when we touch that kind of issue firsthand. Um, Pages sticking together. <laughs> I remember when I was younger at the church that I grew up in at Titarangi, we held a, a Passover dinner, and the man who led us through it talked of his Orthodox Jewish family holding a funeral for him when he became a follower of Jesus. If he rings home, they just hang up the phone because he's dead to them. And just recently, last year, um, just listening to some Presbyterian minister friends of mine who talk about the fact that, um, you know, some of their friends in Myanmar, ministers there in the Presbyterian church, have just disappeared. You know, that's, it's real for a lot of people around the world. Uh, and Jesus' call to the church in Smyrna and to us is to be faithful, not fearful. And we need to listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Now, Smyrna might sound like uh, Russian vodka, but it's a city that sits on the, to the north of Ephesus, and it was Ephesus's rival for prominence in the province. It was a major seaport, and the main imperial trade road th through Asia Minor went inland from there. Therefore, it was a rich and prosperous city. And it was known for two things. It was known for the beauty of its architecture, and it was also known for its faithfulness to Rome. At the centre of its city, there was a building known as the Crown of Smyrna. And it was the first city to be rewarded with the right to build a temple to the worship of the Emperor Tiberius as a god. 
Smyrna today is still standing and is the second largest city in Asiatic Turkey and known by the name Izmir. And we don't know much about the origins of the church in this city. And apart from the letter here in Revelations, uh, we do have letters that were written by Ignatius from that city in the middle of the second century. And we also have a written account of the martyrdom of the Bishop of Smyrna in 156 AD. The bishop's name was Polycarp, and tradition tells us that John the Elder, that's the person that wrote the book of Revelation, actually ordained him personally as bishop. Polycarp was a saintly man. When persecution started, uh, his church had convinced him to flee, but he was betrayed to the Roman authorities. In deference to his old age, they invited him to recant his faith and to offer a sacrifice to the emperor, in which case they would let him live, which he refused to do. He said, eight and six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? A profound example of a person in their senior years being a profound and powerful witness to Jesus. Well, he was burned at the stake. Uh, in the end, as an act of mercy, a soldier ran him through with a sword uh, because the wind kept blowing the flames away from him. It gives us a picture of the extreme persecution that the church in Smyrna is warned of and is starting to experience as this letter is written and also of their faithfulness. Like all the letters, this one starts with the speaker being introduced. Jesus is the one who is speaking to the church. And in all the letters, Jesus introduces himself through aspects of the vision that John had on Patmos, which is in Revelation chapter 1. The way Jesus introduces himself here is a, is a source of encouragement for the church. Here Jesus says that he is the first and the last that he is the eternal God. In the face of different difficulties, suffering and persecution, it's important for us to remember that the situations and the suffering we face now can be seen as having a place in the eternal plans and purposes of God. In the body of the letter of Smyrna, uh, uh, in the body of the body of the letter, Smyrna is told they will suffer for a period of 10 days. Now it may be a symbolic time, or it may be that there was going to be a festival for the emperor. Uh, we don't know why this 10-day period. But in Jesus' introduction, we are encouraged that he has gone before and will go beyond. Uh, Jesus is the first and the last. It's not simply theological sentimentality to acknowledge that God has our times and situations in his hands, but a source of hope and of the ultimate victory of justice and the ultimate victory of Christ. Our trials and sufferings are temporal, but God and God's love for us is eternal. And Jesus also identifies himself as the one who was dead and is alive again. Jesus is not just eternal. Jesus uh, lets them and us know that he has gone before that he has walked the road of suffering, that he has walked the road of slander, that he has walked the road of poverty, 
the road of imprisonment and torture. And yes, he has walked the road of death. And the encouragement that comes from that is best encapsulated in the words of the spiritual from African-American slaves. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. And it's not looking from a distant. It's not a distant, disinterested deity. But it's that Christ has known our pain and our suffering bodily in the incarnation. More than that is the hope and encouragement of the resurrection that Jesus overcame, that he is alive again. The hope and comfort for God's people is that the crown of thorns became the victor's crown. The promise for those who overcome is that they will receive eternal life, that Christ has won. They may face death, but they will not taste the second death, judgment. They will be raised with Christ to eternal life. Then the letter outlines the present and past sufferings of the church. Smyrna was a rich and prosperous city, yet the Christians were facing poverty and exclusion. Maybe the church was made up of many from amongst the slaves and disadvantaged. One of the Roman um, governors of the area um, north of here later would talk of Christianity being a religion-only um, fitting for slaves and women, writing them off. And so maybe that they were just from people that were disadvantaged. Another, another possibility is that in pagan society that they were disadvantaged because they chose not to be part of business and guilds that required sacrifice to the em emperor or which met and feasted in pagan temples. If your business guild got together, you'd usually do it at the pagan temple and all the things that went with that would be part of what happened. And we know that this was a challenge uh, for Christians in, in the early church from Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And despite their physical poverty, paradoxically, Jesus reminds them that they are in actual fact rich. They have this wonderful resource and inheritance in Christ. They have the blessing of the kingdom of God. Jesus' parable of the pearl of great price and the buried treasure in the field which people gave up everything to possess comes to mind here. This over, overwhelming wonder and surpassing greatness, as Paul will talk about, of knowing Jesus. The suffering also seems to be the result of the reaction of some of the Jews in Smyrna one of the things that Roman society valued was civilizations that were more ancient than their own. This meant that for the Jews that they were exempt from having to make sacrifices to the emperor as a sign of their loyalty. The Romans saw that their civilization uh, was older than their own. The early church was seen as a sect of Judaism and so was originally afforded the same protection. But as Christianity continued to grow, the Jews wanted to differentiate themselves from Christians. And Jesus predicted it in the verses in our reading in John 16 this morning. He predicted that there would be a time when they would put Christians out of the synagogue and would consider that they were doing God's work in killing them. This had come true. 
And without that protection in Roman society, they would be expected to sacrifice to the emperor as a god. If they didn't, they would face punishment. They were asked to say, Caesar is Lord, whereas as Christians, we proclaim Jesus is Lord. We do need to unpack some of the strong language used about the Jews in this letter. Uh, Jews who are not really Jews refers to the fact that the early Christians saw that in Jesus they'd found the Messiah and they were the true continuation of the Jewish faith. In Roman law, uh, for someone to be punished and imprisoned and brought before the justice system, there needed to be an accuser. In Jesus' trial, the Gospels tell us people were found who were willing to bring false accusations against him. And Paul, in the book of Acts, seems to have had to deal with the same kind of issues. And the Jews in Smyrna were willing to accuse the Christians of all sorts of things. The word Satan means accuser. And in this letter, John is highlighting that they, in their slander, are acting in that role of being an accuser. Um, But it also points out that behind this is a darker evil force. It's the devil, as it says later, who is trying to test the faith of the Christians in Smyrna. But we need to note that it's specific to this context. Sadly, this kind of terminology has been picked up and used as anti-Semitic propaganda. But it's not anti-Jew. Paul's great letter, uh, Paul in his great letter to the Romans, shows us the longing of himself as a Jew and the the work that God is doing in history uh, so that the Jewish people would turn to Jesus the Messiah. There is a great love there. In the face of the increasing suffering and persecution, however, even to the point of death, the church in this letter is encouraged to be faithful and not fearful. And we as humans naturally react to life-threatening situations in one of three ways. Because we are creatures. We are created beings. And so we react by freezing. Or we react by flight or fight um, responses reflexes. When we're faced by opposition to our faith, be it from unkind words and unfair critiques by friends or workmates, uh, through to the kind of situations mentioned in this letter, it can cause us to freeze, to simply stop talking or living out our faith. Or we can run away and retreat you know our our faith becomes private or confined to sunday mornings in the walls of a building or less we slowly assimilate to the world around us and we walk away or it's to fight to aggressively argue maybe even to respond in unchrist-like ways And I think we are seeing this at the moment. Boy, are we seeing it. I received this letter. It wasn't wasn't, um, addressed to me, but somebody sent it to me. It originated in Australia. And it said that if you are a pastor who is encouraging your people to get vaccinated, and I'd encourage you to get vaccinated, or coercing them, and I would never coerce you, then you are involved in crimes against humanity and genocide. And you will be judged. 
And, you know, I thought, oh, boy, that really hurt. It really hurt. It was unkind. And then uh, Ben Dykeman, who's a, a friend of mine uh, at, and minister at Green Lane Presbyterian Church, you know, very much the, the, almost the next day as I was grappling with that, um, wrote his, in his pastoral email, he just reminded people of what Jesus said. It's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you. It's what comes out. And boy, you know, isn't that a challenge to us? But we can react with that fight. We can almost react in that non-Christian way. But the church at Smyrna and we are called not to be fearful, but to be faithful. Um, when Roland, did, did you have Roland talk? When Roland preached on the, uh, on the letter to the uh, church at Ephesus, he talked about the fact that, you know, when, when the church was to, uh, told to return to its first love, it wasn't returning to that feeling you have when you have that feeling that you've never felt before, you know? That sort of, uh, it wasn't that. It was that they actually started to uh, put that first love for Christ into action. So for the church in Smyrna and for us, being fruitful... Uh, sorry, being faithful means action. And we don't know what it's, it was specifically in that 10-day period for the church at Smyrna. We can speculate that it meant refusal to sacrifice to the emperor. But that call to be faithful in the face of opposition and persecution and slander calls all of us to wider action. Last year we worked through Jesus' teaching in the Olivet Discourse on Matthew 20, in Matthew 24 and 25, where Jesus talked of the things that were to come revolving around the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And like with Revelation, you can get caught up in the occurrences and the vividly described events to come, but the punchline and the crux and the message of Jesus' teaching is contained in the four parables he finishes his long discourse with that speak of living ready for Christ's return and being faithful amidst the trials and difficulties in the world. The parable of the unloving servant it reminds us of the need to keep on, persevere in showing practical love to one another. The parable of the ten virgins reminds us to keep our lamps full of oil, keep our good spiritual disciplines and our relationship with Christ alive and vital. The parable of the talents calls us to keep risking investing our gifts and our talents and our resources into the kingdom of God. And the parable of the sheep and the goats calls us to continue to care for the least among us. That's what it means to live faithfully, not fearfully. Maybe not in the face of persecution, but with COVID, very much on our minds, it's good to have an example of that faithfulness worked out from another recent pandemic. The 2014 Ebola outbreak in West, Aul West Auckland. <laughs> West Africa is, is something that made people fearful. And you might have even remembered that there were people that were really concerned about um, uh, doctors and Christian um, medical missionaries going to uh, West Africa uh, and then coming back because they'd bring it with them and maybe we shouldn't let them come back. Um, but uh, 
it also was something that caused great suffering and death. Stephen Roden volunteered for Doctors Without Borders in Monrovia, Liberia. And his role in the, in the pandemic was to manage the teams who collected the bodies of Ebola victims. They dealt with about 10 to 25 bodies a day and risked becoming victims themselves. In a radio interview with typical English understatement, he spoke of the sad case of going into a house to collect the body of a four-year-old child from its parents. Asked if he was a religious man, he replied, yes, he was a committed Christian. And the interviewer then asked if, they, if this was testing his faith, to which he replied, no, I get great strength from my faith and the support of my family. So he was able to faithfully keep on serving. He was full of faithful actions, not fearful action. And all the letters in Revelation finish with a promise for those who overcome and persevere. Those who hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. And the letter to Smyrna expresses the Christian hope in the face of suffering in a series of paradoxes. They are poor, suffering from poverty, but in Christ they are rich. They face death, but in Christ they find life. Satan is accusing them and causing suffering and death, but the sovereign God is using that to test and to refine their faith. And about 20% of the logos for the city of Smyrna that archaeologists have found, um, they are, the logo, in fact, shows the laurel of the Roman victory crown, a sign that the city is being rewarded for its faithfulness to Rome. The city itself had the crowning glory of its architecture. But to those who remain faithful to King Jesus, they will receive a greater crown they will receive eternal life in Christ. And the call to us as a church facing struggle and trial is to be faithful, not fearful, to listen to what the, church, uh, the Spirit is saying to the church, that we too will not taste the second death, but know eternal life in Christ. So live faithfully, not fearfully. Let's pray. Loving God, we want to thank you very much for the church at Smyrna. We thank you for what the Spirit is saying to the church and somehow it seems to echo down through the ages and speak to us today. We thank you very much for the faithful witness of the church at Smyrna and what we know, the very little we know of history, the fact that they stood strong for Jesus even in the face of persecution. And Lord God, we would pray that you would help us by your Holy Spirit to live faithfully, to live following Jesus in the good times and also when it's hard to do it, in the face of encouragement, in the face of discouragement, looking to the one who is the first and the last, the one who is dead and is alive. Jesus Christ. Amen. Great.